Welcome to another episode of the FYE podcast. Uh, as always, the comments, opinions, and thoughts represented or expressed in the FYE podcast do not represent the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Um, today, I have with me a, uh, actually, it's a very special guest. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Nolan Cabrera. Uh, Dr. Cabrera is a, an award-winning scholar and nationally recognized expert in the area of racism anti-racism on college campuses, whiteness, and ethnic studies. He's currently an associate professor in the Center for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Arizona, and was the only academic featured in the MTV documentary, White People. Dr. Cabrera moves beyond the few bad apples frame of contemporary racism and explores the structures, policies, ideologies, and experiences that allow racism to flourish. He calls upon institutions of higher education to be sites of social transformation instead of reinforcing systemic racism while creating a platform to engage and challenge the public discourse on post-racialism. Dr. Cabrera, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I've uh, invited you today and, and, and thank you again for joining us because I, I think, not because I think, right? We know what happened following the recent death of George Floyd and everything that's happening in the world. And for myself, I know as, a, as, a, as an academic, as a scholar, somebody who works in higher ed. Um, and then as, so there's that aspect, there's that piece of me, right? That of my identity. And then there's me, the, the, the everyday person, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was kind of struggling, like seeing what was happening, understanding my role within that, but then also my role as a faculty member, my role at a university. Um, and so I wanted to bring you on and really have a conversation so that one, you can lend your expertise to it, but so that we could have a good conversation about one, our roles as, as people, as citizens, right? And as human beings. Yeah. But, then, and, but then maybe taking it and extending that to, for us, as academics, and then the role of, the, of, of higher education. What is higher education's role within this discussion, within this movement moving forward? So where would you like to start? <laughs> There's like 27 questions embedded. <laughs> I, I know. Let's, let's pick one. Well, so I would say, you're immediate, what, were, what were you immediately thinking? I mean, because yeah. this is what you study. This is what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the immediate aftermath, seeing what's going on in this country, yes. what are you thinking? Well, and so for me, it, it was horrific, but not surprising. This sort of stuff happens all the time. And people had this sort of Pollyannish view that because there are body cams and, you know, cell phone cameras and all this stuff, that police brutality would end magically. And it's like, no, that, that, that's that's such an asinine thought and i was i think that what was really how shocked white people were to see that and, and it has created a really really difficult um social environment because mm -hmm. white folk like aziz ansari has a beautiful line on this where he says racism didn't just become a thing because white people discovered it you know and and there's nothing more exhausting than a recently woke white person because there's like this moral outrage, it's, it's you know, that, that just bubbles up. And, and that's good, you should be outraged. But then all of a sudden it's like, 
yeah, but where were you last year? Where were you 10 years ago? Where were you, you know, I mean, this is not, I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, the first year at Stanford University um, with some friends who will remain anonymous, you know, the, the, the Stanford police were following us and we ended up on our knees in the Rodin Sculpture Garden because we looked suspicious. As in, we looked like the kids from East Palo Alto and we had to prove that we were actually Stanford students. Uh, and, instead of, you know, and that's sort of that presumption. It's like that so much of the racial profiling and the racialized violence from police um, is the inversion of the way it's supposed to be. You're, you have to prove that you belong if you're a person mm -hmm. of color, right? You're, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent instead of, instead of the presumption that you're innocent until proven guilty. And it's especially exacerbated on black bodies in this day and age, but let's not get it twisted. I mean, the violence that's been occurring against Asian American communities with the China virus, um, the extreme police violence against, uh, uh, against brown communities in this day and age, uh, especially uh, along the border and the presumption that we're all not just illegals, and I hate that term, but I use it to represent the popular vernacular. Um, but then what becomes of that? I mean, you have, not only do you have, you know, ICE and family separations and kids in cages, but you also have border vigilantes who are down there literally hunting brown bodies, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and part of what's difficult about this is we've been experiencing this on such a deep level for so long. And then white folks are like, oh my God, this is happening? Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating because I'm struggling to maintain for myself, my family and my community. And now on top of it, I'm having to tend to the fragility of white people say, you know, who are just, I don't know what to do and why are people so angry? I'm just trying to be involved in it. And it's like, because it's not about you, right? If you want to be involved in this, and I, I kind of came up with a metaphor on the fly yesterday uh, when I was doing another webinar, you wouldn't come to somebody's house party and you walk in the door and you're like, ah, oh, this music is whack, the lighting is terrible, the beers, you know, you just, you come and you're a guest in this house. And that's sort of what I need. I kind of need white people to, in this day and age, consider themselves in racial justice movements, a guest, an invited guest, an important guest, but still a guest in the house. I keep hearing this, well, you know, I'm really concerned about the looting and I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned. Well, first of all, white folk are doing a lot of the looting in the first place, you know? Yeah. And then also you, you're ignoring the overt police violence and the way that, you know, the police uh, cleared out uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, before, you know, Trump went and had that photo op in front of the church. I mean, people are hurting, people are damaged, and that should be the first and foremost thing. Yeah. People are being harmed in this, and that's the center of it. And that's, I think, where we need to start. You know, I, I you know, honest, I, I was watching Fox News because I like having high blood pressure. And um, <laughs> their reporter was like, I'm from New York. And, and, and they broke into a Macy's. And look at them looting the Macy's. And then they'll do this. They'll like break into a department store and then steal everything. And then they'll move to the next department store while the police are at this, you know. And I'm, like, and I'm just sitting there like, I don't give a shit about Macy's. Mm -hmm. They're insured. They're a multi-million dollar, you know, 
conglomerate, they're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. But the people on the street, I mean, that stuff is hairy. Yeah. You know, and then in Arizona, it gets even worse because folks are packing, like not even like concealed carry. I mean, this is like wild west on your hip. Wow. And that shit's wild. Let me ask you, because, you know, you mentioned, I think you've you've provided some really good context, right? Because it, it wasn't just about this one incident, right? You, you talked about um, violence along the border, right? Um, the, uh, I mean, family separation, you know, we had images of children in cages and, you know, dog kennels. We talk about the, the violence against Asian Americans. And so all of these events, mm-hmm. right, into, into this larger puzzle. What was it about this one, though, that you think that really set everything off? Why was, why, what was it about this one that, that maybe got us over the edge or got, you know, people? That's a, that's a tough question. That's a really difficult one. Um, I, I, I think I think there were a lot of different confounding factors all all going into it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the first thing is is that it, you know it's not it's not just George Floyd that there was a string of these that happened. A lot in in, um, in Georgia who's literally being hunted in the community by white folk. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that vigilante justice. You know, and that's why stand your ground laws are so um, they're so dangerous. Yeah. And, and the thing is, let me back up. Intuitively, we knew this, right? Because like when we were in grade school, our teachers, you know, our parents may have said, okay, if they throw the first punch, you're allowed to defend yourself as just sort of a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. Our teachers always said, I don't care what happens, you don't get into a fight. Why did they say that? Because if you and I have beef, but I know I can't throw the first punch, I'll be sticking my finger in your ear. I'll be, you know, I'll be messing with you. I'll be poking you. And then Jay comes and punches me. Now I can roll up, you know. And that's the point is that, you know, all you have to do is make the other person into a threat. You don't, they don't actually have to be a threat. Mm-hmm. That was the George Zimmerman thing. I mean, he was aggressive going after Trayvon Martin. And yet he can say, oh, but he was beating me with an inch of his life or an inch of my life. I'm like, yeah. You should have gotten beat within an inch of your life. You had no business doing that. Mm-hmm. And this kid is dead because, A, you can't fight your way out of a paper bag, and B, you're a racist vigilante. So, it, but that's sort of what's going on here is that, you know, it's that internalized unconscious racism where it's easy to see black and brown bodies as just a priori threatening. So then you had... Um, uh, then you had Breonna Taylor and you had, I mean, you just had a series of boom, boom, boom and George Floyd. But I think a couple of things had happened altogether. People are on edge right now with Corona. Like that's just pent up frustration. But I also think there was something weird. And I, I, I'm going to kind of riff on this a little bit, but the, it, it, I haven't fully thought this out. But despite, you know, the, 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 the Second Amendment, pro, the, the protests that open up and all this stuff, in many respects, a lot of communities at least felt superficially like they were coming together in this time. Mm -hmm. In my area, people were actually being really nice to each other, even like, you know, even in convenience stores. Oh, no, please, you go ahead of me. Oh, excuse, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, you know, social distance, let's keep our thing, good to see, you know. Folks were being really kind to each other. And then this was just a a stark reminder that now we're still really, really, really far apart. It's not just that this event happened, but then the response to it was so varied. You had people 
you had a large sector of the white population that was saying that, you know, police have a difficult job and blue lives matter and all lives matter and all this, you know, all you, the, the cliche rhetoric in response, you know, what was he doing, you know, and then, oh my God. And, and then you had this collective pain in communities of color because we've experienced this so much, mm -hmm. such a stark reminder that, you know, the people who are there to protect and serve sometimes are the ones who are the biggest threat to our actual safety. Mm -hmm. That's a harsh, harsh thing. Cause there are some times that I would like to call the police, but I will always be thinking twice about it because it's like, if, if something happens, it, like, I never know if they're going to mistake, you know, are they really going to talk to my white neighbor or am I going to be seen as a suspect? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think there was all these different factors that kind of, that kind of uh, uh, played into it. And it only gets exacerbated with social media because then you have like these white kids who are doing the George Floyd challenge and you don't know what that is. No, so, I, I had so they're, they're posting photos on Instagram of their buddy uh, uh, putting their knee on the neck and sitting there, Hey, I'm okay. And it's like, why at, the, at this time, how can you be so isolated? How can you be so overtly racist that you actually make fun of a murder that was witnessed out in public? And then I think that was the biggest thing is that not just that George Floyd became, was sort of a solidifying one because it was law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It was over an extended period of time. Like the, George Floyd was subdued. He was on the ground. And first of all, that knee on the neck is not necessary. That's to accomplish what that police officer wanted to do. And hearing the cries of, I, you know, that I can't breathe. I'm and we saw the same thing with um, Eric Gardner in, in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and when you see the life literally getting choked out of somebody and it's just happening there and anybody could stop it at any point, any one of those three other officers and the officer with his knee, any one of them could have stopped it civilians were trying to get him to stop and they wouldn't listen, mm -hmm. you know, cause you, you hear police officers all the time. say, well, you know, in real time, you know, we got into a tussle, someone reached for my gun and the, you know, and those things happen like that. But this is one it's so egregious cause it happened so long, so many times to correct and they chose not to. And you're watching someone get murdered right in front of your very eyes. Police sanctioned murder, that is hard to digest. And so it just, it was sort of all these different factors coming together. And then I think that the big thing that we can't forget is that we're still living in Trump's America where peaceful protesters, that the he'll equate peaceful protests for racial justice with neo-Nazis and say, well, they're, you know, and white supremacists and white nationalists and say that, you know, well, there are fine people on all sides. No, he has so emboldened white supremacists in this day and age. Like it used to be a shameful thing to be a white nationalist like that. And that was a rightfully a shameful thing. Yeah. And he's saying, no, no, you know, there's fine people on all sides because that's his base. Really scary for a lot of communities of color is relatively frequently that someone will infiltrate a, uh, some kind of a online forum, you know, a closed group. And all of a sudden, not only are you seeing this overtly racist rhetoric and hateful, violent rhetoric, but you'll see people in law enforcement, the military, I like all these groups that are participating in it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, holy crap. Like this is, this is really, really, really scary time to live in. 
I have a, I have a, a friend and colleague in, in Colorado State, Susana Munoz, does a lot of work around um, uh, immigrant student activists, immigrant rights, and higher education. She has a beautiful saying, I'm going to paraphrase, where she says that dehumanizing laws give license to dehumanize. And I like that as a structural analysis because before you had the echo chamber of Fox News, before you had a Trump presidency, before you had all these different things at play, there were still these overtly racist people, but they were kind of off to the side in society. I mean, they're still there, but they were more yeah. emboldened to do this, right? You know, and if everyone around you is saying, no, nah, dude, you're kind of crazy, you start putting it on yourself. Mm -hmm. But when the president of the United States is saying, not only are you correct and you're vilified, but you're sort of the ultimate patriots of our country, that emboldens these people to do horrific things constantly mm -hmm. because, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this righteous act on behalf of a horrible dictator. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge context. So you have Trump, Corona, everything leading up to it, and then the specifics of George Floyd. You know, we're seeing this massive movement across the country mm -hmm. and a lot of young people involved. Um, for us and within our profession, and, and you, you, you study this, you study racism, right? Uh, what is the role of the academic in all of this? Um, the short answer of it is it depends. When we're talking about a youth-led grassroots movement, mm -hmm. you know, like there's, like at the University of Arizona, there's going to be a, a, a rally and protest that's very much oriented in that way on Saturday. What's the role of the academic? The academic is there to sit there to show up and be quiet, which for us is very hard because that's not, <laughs> I am a professor, I profess, you know, yeah. uh, but no, but that, that's, that's really important. They mm -hmm. create the space. If they invite you into it, yeah, if your number's called, say something, but it's not your space. It's not your place. And just take a step back. I think, though, that, that one of the big things with academics is that we, we, get too, um, uh, we get too comfortable writing articles that only we read and collect dust on bookshelves. And, and, <laughs> and so, you know, we do have networks where we're able to engage the, the, the public discourse. And now is exactly the time to be doing that to be amplifying marginalized voices, marginalized issues of, of, of marginalized communities in those spheres where we actually do have influence. And that varies. And that's the weird thing about academics. You know, we talk about us as a monolith, but people have a lot of different orientations and relationships to, um, to different spheres of power. Some of us have the ears of policymakers. Some of us have the ears of CEOs. Some of us, you know, whatever it is, wherever you have that influence, use it. Now's the time, your number's called, use it. A big one right now where we really need to have our voices heard is on these issues of campus reopenings because our, our presidents guided by their CFOs are gonna be guided by the bottom line. That's it. And, and, and I understand that angst, like, you know, we could shut our doors if we you know, had this large of a, down, of, a, of a downfall. The center of it should always be the safety of, of people, the safety of our students, the safety of our staff, the safety of our faculty. It's supposed to be about faculty governance. That is, we're not just sort of like, oh, Mr. President, if you don't mind. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're card-carrying members of this institution. And so I think all the way around, we need to be able to do that. And I think it's going to be equally important for us to monitor the um, institutional response as it comes to the, a lot of these issues of, of, around 
around George Floyd, because a lot of our students are going to be hurting. And mm -hmm. a lot of the empty gestures by central administration, they, they don't do anything except, they, they, you know, if, if, you're, if you're president who never really cared about issues of race, all of a sudden says, we hear you, we're here for you, and Black Lives Matter, it doesn't do anything. It can actually piss you off more because they weren't there for you. They're not actually offering tangible support. And you're like, it only reinforces the idea that, yeah, they don't care about us. So, you know, if you really want to demonstrate that care for, uh, for your students and care for your campus community, we have to remember that care is a verb, not an emotion. We demonstrate it through our actions and how it is that we take care of each other. And I think that's going to vary campus to campus, but it's going to be really important moving ahead because, you know, a college president taking a knee is a lot less meaningful than let's reevaluate our relationship with the local police department. How much are we investing in, in that area? Um, let's think about um, do we, is racial equity really embraced in our institution or do we just sort of give diversity lip service to, you know, when it's convenient because it happens to be Black History Month or, uh, you know, Cesar Chavez Day or something like that. Thank you. I, I think my last question or at least point um, I think you've, you've touched on that a little bit because I was going to ask, how do we not lose? How do we not lose the momentum? What do we have to do? And, and I'm not saying like us as academics or even the institution, but just everybody. How do we take advantage of this moment? So I'll, I'll reframe the question just a little bit. We're going to lose momentum. That's the, that's the whole notion of a movement. It's mm -hmm. temporary. It goes and then it stops. But I think that the, that the biggest... The, the biggest things that we need to be doing right now are really advocating for um, substance, substantive support and meaningful change, you know, and so there's a difference between a college president taking a knee versus saying, look, why do we have such a heavily policed, um, you know, why, why is there such a heavy police presence on our, on our college campus? And so if we start institutionalizing things like racial equity audits, and that can be all the way around. So what does our curriculum look like? Do we have meaningful incorporation of different racial and ethnic groups into, our, into what we're teaching? Or again, does it kind of slip into that, have a little diversity requirement over here, it's usually really watered down. The kids take that check box and we're good to go. Yeah. Is, is the support of social equity actually valued at the institution? Is it part of a promotion and tenure dossier? Is it part of the evaluation scheme that our deans, uh, department heads, provosts, uh, presidents, when they are evaluated, are they evaluated on criteria that actually supports racial equity? Or is it just this kind of, again, just like a little checkbox, hey, it was really cute that I did this off to the side. Because I love the way that Tuck and Yang reframed social justice education, where they, they said, this is not some sort of a boutique issue. This is the center of education. This is the crux of education. This is the core of what we do. Our institutional leaders will talk about, our, our, our university leaders will talk about how, you know, we're, we're, we're at the forefront of discovery and pushing human capability and ultimately thrive as one of the premier democratic institutions in our country. Well, 
Democracy derives from the roots of demos, meaning people and crassing any rule. And you cannot have a rule by the people if some people are made more equal than others. If you privilege white people and whiteness in your institutional structure, you necessarily are anti-democratic. But just because it is a way doesn't mean that it always has to be that way. We have the opportunity to restructure our environments in ways that actually do support racial equity. A lot of our institutions are either um, Hispanic serving or emerging HSIs. And, you know, let's actually ask, what does that designation mean? Mm -hmm. Let's borrow from Dr. Gina Garcia and say, hey, are we Hispanic enrolling or are we actually Hispanic serving? What are we doing to actually promote support? Or do we have a presence in outreach out in these communities where we're trying to get Latinx students coming to campus? Do we actually have representation at all levels of the institution? And more importantly, are there accountability metrics in place so that we can make sure that people are actually pushed in that direction? Because we've been offering carrots for years and it doesn't always, it, it makes the people who are already predisposed to do meaningful diversity work in that direction. But that's not the bulk of folk at our institutions. Yeah. Folks need to understand if you're going to continue to do this work, you know, doing your, your inquiry, you, it's not the idea of the university was a great one, you know, stemming from the enlightenment, but it was a flawed concept because they thought that just by doing scientific scholarly inquiry, you're necessarily advancing humanity. And what we found is that, no, that's one part of it, but what you need to do also, but right now, a lot of that scholarly inquiry is only supporting specific sectors of humanity. And so by increasing our focus on equity and making it, at not again, not a convenient add-on, but a core of what we do, this is what we do. That's the vision moving ahead. That's what we need to have because it was an important development, the creation of the university, but again, it was limited. And that's where we need to go is to say, no, we've rethought, we've reformulated what advancing humanity means. And this is our core. This is what we do. We still want to serve the people and this is how we're going to go about doing it. Thank you. I, th I think you, uh, I, I think we, uh, well, I think you did a good job tackling all of those questions. Uh, from the outset. And so you, I think you bring up a lot of good points and a lot of tangible things that I think one, one that we can do, but certainly that our institutions can do moving forward and, and supporting again, this movement, as you said, any final thoughts, final reflections from you? I think in this day and age right now that um, it's a confusing time. It's a trying time. It's an incredibly difficult time. And I think one of the things that we as educators can do that's important is not normalizing it because I never want to normalize this kind of an experience. It's important for us to normalize our reactions to it, to say that it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I hear a lot of fear from my faculty colleagues because they say, if I give students the opportunity to not be okay, some of them are going to take advantage of it and you know, we'll just not show up to class and we'll not, we'll lack, slack off on their assignments. And I get that. But the point is our students are going to be hurting in ways that we will never really fully understand and fully know. And that we have to just sort of start off, you know, instead of, I think a lot of our faculty colleagues start off from the, uh, from the perspective that, oh, okay, 
unless somebody says something's wrong, everything's hunky-dory. Our students yeah. are coming in, they smiled at me in class, everything's good to go. I almost think we need to kind of, to use a nerdy stats idea, like flip the null hypothesis. We assume folks are in this day and age that folks are not okay unless mm -hmm. they tell us otherwise. And I know that's sort of a simplistic formulation, but ultimately I think at the end of the day, we also have to give ourselves some grace in this, that we, we're not Superman, we're not Superwoman. And this is such a giving profession, constantly giving of ourselves. And I, I, I loved, I, I keep coming back and it's like, if anybody who knows me sees this podcast, they're gonna roll their eyes because I say this ad nauseum, but I think it's so relevant uh, right now that Audre Lorde uh, said that uh, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and therefore an act of political warfare. And I think that we need to give ourselves the grace to be doing some of this self-care. And I mean meaningful self-care, not, all too often I say that, and then folks immediately jump to a spot that, like that for me is indulgent. Like that's, you know, it's fun, it's cool. When I mean self-care, I mean taking the time to be not okay taking the time to meditate, taking the time to reflect, taking the time to, uh, to keep our bodies in shape, mm -hmm. taking the time to reflect on it if we're, if we're in, you know, subconsciously developing really bad habits during this time. I know that I definitely have. You know, there's that, that joke about the, uh, you know, they had the freshman 15 for college and then we have the COVID-19 for the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but really looking at ourselves and, 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 and I'll give, and I'll do one more specifically for, for, for straight cis guys, give yourself time to cry. We're so taught that that's not, that's the antithesis of who we should be as men, but it, stuff is just piling up here. Mm. And we need to be able to process in some really, really meaningful ways. And I think giving ourselves the grace and the space to be able to do that is important, especially because then looping back to my first point, I think a lot of my faculty colleagues' resistance isn't just the fear that their students will take advantage. Mm. I think that part of it is also that people have not afforded them that grace, so they do not want to give it to other people. And I think that if we allow ourselves to be hurt, like we are hurt already, but to acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the struggle, acknowledge the difficulty, and cut ourselves some slack in that process, it'll be easier to cut other people some slack while they're going through the same things as well. That's a good point. That's Thank a really good point. And I, th and I think, I think you're right. I think all too often, you know, we're, we're too hard on ourselves and we don't give ourselves that opportunity to, to really reflect and think about and, and uh, process and, uh, and do all of the things that you, that you suggested we do. Well, I mean, what's the, the archetype of the academic is we're going a thousand miles an hour and, you know, and you see people post it all the time. Hey, look, I got, I submitted this article. I got this grant and I went for a 10 mile run this morning. And, you know, and I made this, whole, you know, it's like, and then we start feeling bad about ourselves. It's like, shoot, I, I barely want to get out of bed right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a zoom meeting and one of the professors was really proud because he had changed his shirt. <laughs> the day. It was a, felt pretty accomplished. And I, and I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, well, it, in, in, in my whole thing, like, like this morning, I'll, I'll be real. Like I did not, I had so much come down on me yesterday. I was processing so much stuff. I, I just did not want to get out of bed. 
I didn't mm -hmm. get out of bed at all. Um, but I did force myself to get out of bed and just, I, I went for like, had like a four or five mile long walk, just, just walk. Mm -hmm. you know, you know, not sitting there running and getting in shape, obviously not, but just, you know, walk, hear the birds, uh, you know, see the snakes, be careful, um, you know, but just be out there. Yeah. Um, uh, and just, just kind of, de-stress process and then I can come back to this and, and through that able to reflect the pain that people are experiencing right now is un it's unbelievable how much people are hurting right now or maybe mm -hmm. it's believable and the circumstances we're dealing with are unbelievable yeah that's better it's a natural human response to unbelievable circumstance every five minutes somebody's texting calling emailing Nothing. This is in addition to work stuff. This is just how the hell do I process what's going on here? Yeah. And hearing that and processing that. I mean, what I also realize is I sometimes forget that. Oh yeah, I'm a person too, and I'm internalizing a lot of this stuff. And I think a lot of my faculty colleagues do the exact same thing, especially the more progressively oriented ones. They just get dumped on all the time. I appreciate you coming on, appreciate and uh, and I hope you're taking care of yourself. It's an uphill battle, but. It's one of those, it's, it's like Talib Kweli says, life is a beautiful struggle. And that's it. That's it right there. You know, just trying to, uh, trying to do it, trying to maintain. And what, you know, <laughs> the weird thing is whenever, whenever my little dude is around, it's actually easier to maintain because I can always say, hey, at least I'm doing it for him. Yeah. It's always hard. It feels selfish and self-indulgent. So maybe I keep saying Audrey Lord's quote as a reminder to myself at the very least. I think you need to cut yourself a little bit of slack too. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. Right. Well, you take care of yourself, and I mean that in the literal sense. And I will, my my promise is, I will I will try to do the same. Okay. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks again, man. And uh, you take care. We'll we'll uh, we'll check in. Man.